When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The U, the new Miami, the new Miami, the new Miami, surge, surge, the new Miami, the new Miami, the new Miami, surge, surge. It's a cane thing when we walk through, with the U ain't no bark, dude, straight dog when we bring the fight, ain't scared of no bright lights. Welcome back to the Wide Ride Podcast, Manny Navarro here, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It is Wednesday, November 10th, it is 3 p.m., and it is officially FSU hate week. A uh, lot of anti-FSU talk amongst the fans. They can't wait to, to beat them for the fifth year in a row. Uh, Miami is favored by two and a half points uh, in the game. That's going to be played Saturday, 3.30 p.m. on ESPN. And the Hurricanes are five and four, coming off three straight victories. And FSU is three and six. They're fighting for their bowl eligibility. We will talk to Andre Fernandez, one of the FSU beat writers for the Tallahassee Democrat in a little while to get his take from from what's happening in Tallahassee. Dre is a University of Miami grad, a Miami guy through and through, but uh, he'll have an interesting perspective because he was on the other side of the rivalry. Of course, here co-hosting with me once again, we're going to answer some mailbag questions and talk Canes is Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day podcast. Carlos, first thought coming off of Georgia Tech and where this program is. What what's what what's on your mind here as we as we narrow down uh, to the last three regular season games with Manny Diaz clinging to his job and Miami, uh, you know, putting themselves in position to potentially sneak into the ACC championship game. Well, the, the first thing I want to that came to my mind is Andre covering Florida State sports for the Tallahassee Democrat is kind of like Luke Skywalker having to go to the Death Star and be a journalist <laughs> and cover um, <laughs> cover Darth Vader and cover right. the Empire. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it is Andre's a guy who grew up and I and I've known Andre since we were both uh in our late teens early 20s um I used to go over to his house and and we'd open up his closet and he had about 3,452 Miami Hurricane shirts and he yep. grew up down the street from the Orange Bowl he went to UM he loved the Canes and so really interesting conversation we recorded it earlier today uh but uh, just about what it's like to be on the other side of that rivalry man and and you know um Good talk. I mean, this is going to be the first time Miami and FSU meet since uh, Bobby Bowden and Howard Schnellenberger passed. So it's a little bit of an emotional tie to the game from that perspective. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, both coaches, uh, you know, right now, every every team in Florida stinks. Every college team in Florida stinks. Everybody's fighting to to kind of get to the mountaintop. Important game for, for Manny Diaz and Mike Norvell. But aside from all that, Carlos, let, let's focus on the Canes for now. Let's let's zero in on your football team. Um what did you what impressed you? What disappointed you? What did you take away from Georgia Tech? So I, I thought the way they started the game was was pretty impressive. I thought, you know, the way they started, I thought they were going to be able to handle Georgia Tech pretty easily and, and put the game away early. Unfortunately, I had those three fumbles in, in the first half and that sort of turned the tide. They gave up those two long runs and, and the one long pass uh, to Gibbs. But aside from those big plays um, and, and the fumble return for a touchdown, they pretty much handled things on defense. I think it was one of those games where 
it was a trap game. A lot of things went wrong. A lot of things could have exploded and imploded the game for the Hurricanes, and they still found a way to win. And it, it almost felt like even while these things were going on, I never felt, and I'm a neurotic Hurricanes fan, like the game was in doubt. I always felt the Hurricanes were going to pull it out. And I guess that's the, because of the confidence these kids are playing with, how hard they're playing, how well they're playing on offense particularly. But I have a stat for you. So Go for it. The last time Miami had a negative two turnover margin, against a Power 5 team, and won the game. When do you think that was? Well, they haven't had many situations. I, I know that they – I think I wrote in my story, 35-4 and four going into that game when they win the turnover battle, and much worse. Uh, I'm talking about since Manny Diaz and Mark Richter arrived. And yeah. much worse. I think it was like nine wins. So it, it has to be few and far between where they where they either broke even or lost the turnover battle. So when, so, when was it? So the last time was October 17th, 2013 against North Carolina. Wow. They had four turnovers to Carolina's two. So they had a negative two turnover margin and they still ended up winning the game 27, 23. Amazing. Now here's an even better one. The last time they had a negative two turnover margin against a power five team and gave up a defensive touchdown. The last time they won a game doing that. Probably 2000. It is November 23rd, 2006 versus Boston College. It was Larry Coker's last season. Wow. So very rare, very rare uh, victory for them when they make as many mistakes as they made in that game. Which to me is a positive. Which to me, That's what I take away from it. I take away from this team in the past would have all these things go wrong and would just sink and, and would lose the game and find a way to lose. On the contrary, they had these three fluky fumbles. One that got returned for a touchdown, had a two-point conversion return back for, for two points. I mean, a, a return for back for two points. And they still overcame that and won the game, which to me is impressive. Well, a couple of things uh, coming out of that game. One, there were a couple of guys that were dinged up. Uh, James Williams went back to the locker room in the middle of the third quarter sometime. Uh, missed, missed some action, but he came back and he played. He finished. Tyreek Stevenson is always dealing with something. Um, yeah, always he, I don't know what's going on. But he plays through it. Anyway, both of them uh, in practice this week were in red non-contact jerseys on Tuesday. And Manny Diaz earlier today, as we record this Wednesday, of course, November 10th, uh, informed us that uh, they both went through practice uh, in the red non-contact jersey, but they went through everything that they needed to go through, and he expects them both to play. So that's good news going into this game because you don't want to be minus two, two key starters on the defensive side of the ball. But still, they're banged up. They're, they're, they're obviously playing with something. Um, going into this game, uh, FSU quarterback uh, Jordan Travis looks like he's going to end up coming back and 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 playing. Uh, he missed the NC State game, which they lost twenty eight to fourteen. So that's good news for FSU that they're going to have their quarterback back. They should be better uh, with him under center, and they're certainly dangerous uh, in oh, yeah. the running game. Um, so from an injury perspective, those are kind of the two noteworthy uh, things. Some of the things that we talked about, and Carlos, you can chime in here, you know, with what interests you the most. But some of the conversation this week um, regarding Manny Diaz in Miami had to do with the linebackers, right? And and the fact that, um, to me, you know, the, some of the big breakdowns on defense were Corey Corey Flag not going to where he needed to be, um, and then all of a sudden you see Ryan Ragoni, the former walk on coming on the field. And that's a big deal going to this game because of how well FSU can run the football, especially when, when, when Travis is a quarterback. Um, and I asked Manny, you know, this is a big topic for Kane Why aren't we seeing the freshmen, right? Why aren't we seeing um, mm -hmm. all the guys that they've recruited? And this is sort of the biggest indictment on Manny. 
And he answered the question pretty, pretty straightforward. He was pretty honest. He basically said, we go through walkthroughs. Guys who are supposed to be going in the A gap go through the B gap. When we tell them to go through the B gap, they go through the C gap. And I can't play these guys. He says, if I do, I'll lose the locker room, essentially is what he said. So right. I, well, I know Miami fans are clamoring for changes at linebacker because they, they hate seeing the 71-yard touchdown run or the 29-yard untouched touchdown run. Basically, what Manny Diaz is saying is there's not good enough behind them. So I think one thing everybody's just going to have to accept is this is how it's going to ride out the rest of the way. Like the rest of this season, at yeah. least, until they can get into the transfer portal or until they can get Wesley Bassaint to commit and come in, like, this is what you got. And Manny is still hopeful that, you know, the two freshmen that they recruited in this last cycle, um, one of them is Deshaun Troutman. Um, trying to remember the other the other kid who they got that was part of this class. Uh, the, uh, Chase Smith, but he's more of a striker. Um... No, uh, Johnson, uh, the, 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 the younger brother of Jaquan Johnson. Okay. He, he Those are the two guys that they have hope for at the linebacker position, essentially is what he said. So from a defense, defensive perspective, that was one interesting topic from this week. Um, from the offensive perspective, um, you know, it's, it's how much can you depend on Jalen Knighton? And at what point do some of these younger guys start to play? I asked that question as well regarding Cody Brown um, and, and, and getting Thad Franklin on the field. And again, you know, uh, Rhett Lashley's like, look, we're challenging these guys. We're like, hey, some one of you guys needs to step up. And it all starts with pass protection, getting that part of it yeah. right. So. Anyway, those are those are just two initial thoughts. Anything from the press conferences or things that you've read, Carlos, that's on your mind before we get to mailbag and everything else? Well, I think the linebacker situation is interesting because, as you know, it's 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 the biggest weakness on the defense right now. And I said on my podcast that for this Georgia Tech game, I thought they should use Corey Flagg more on the line of scrimmage, more as a blitzer and try and avoid him playing his regular mic role because then Georgia Tech will take advantage of him with quarterback runs and running Jameer Gibbs in the flat on him. And they did that for a big portion of the game, actually. They kept Corey Flagg up on the line of scrimmage. They used him as a blitzer, but you can't do that every play. So when Georgia Tech saw him lined up at his regular position, then they attacked him. Um, Corey Flagg's a good kid. He's he's makes plays when he's around the ball. But the thing is, he can't get around the ball that often because he's not that athletic. And that's the biggest issue they're finding. Then their most athletic linebacker, Keontre Smith, hasn't been right since he's come back from the injury. And he's not playing well from a mental perspective. He's in the wrong spots. Um, right now, the brightest spot in the linebacking core is Wayman Seed, which I thought I'd never say in my life. Yep. Um, but Wayman Seed's actually playing pretty well. And uh, it's not like these guys don't – it's not like Manny doesn't want to play Avery Huff or Tyreek Austin Cave. He wants them to develop. He wants to play them ahead of Ryan Rangoni. He doesn't want to have to use Ryan Rangoni. But at some point, these kids have to accept the responsibility for earning their playing time. If they can't be smart enough to distinguish between an A gap, a B gap, or a C gap, then they can't get on the field. Because then they can't fill the wrong gap, the right gaps. And I think the other thing that led to those long runs <clears throat> on a couple of them was actually James Williams. Not one, not filling in the right gap. Bad angles, yep. Bad angles, getting washed down on a blitz. And then on the Jameer Gibbs uh, pass, he took a terrible angle to try and tackle him. Gibbs shook him and went down the sideline. So, you know, those things happen. Those are young players. But it's encouraging that you can get the flip side of those plays with these young players, too. They will go out there and they'll do what a Leonard Taylor did, which is blow up the line of scrimmage, get in the backfield. They'll go out there and they'll make plays in the secondary, like an Avante Williams who made a tremendous interception uh, in the game. And you hope to see more of that. And they continue to build on those things. And you know what? It's good they had a bad game and we won. They need to be taught. They need to grow. They can't go out there and believe that their shit doesn't stink and then there isn't another level that they can reach. If there's tape to show them there is more they can do, then that's good. Let's build on it and get better. 
And, you know, one thing about you mentioned James Williams and, and Avante's pick, which was the highlight, you know, from the defensive perspective, because it was pretty much an incredible <laughs> pick where he just leaped over the guy, reached over and grabbed the ball with one hand, essentially. Um, you know, the, him, uh, Avante, James Williams and Cam Kitchens were on the field together for 27 snaps. And that's what you want to see more of. You want to get your best athletes on the field um, if you're Miami. And the more Avante Williams learns right now, I think he's got third down figured out. Mm -hmm. It's first and second down and learning, you know, communication and all those kind of things that are important. The moment he figures it out and you can get all three guys on the field, I think you're really going to see this defense take a step forward where it's not just third down or passing situations, but all the time because both all, all three of those guys are smart, instinctual, great athletes that, that are, that are going to help you win a lot of games. Um, and so oh, yeah. 20, 27 snaps, that's a good start. Um, one other storyline from this week, uh, Gervin Hall um, and Bradley Jennings uh, entered the transfer portal on Monday. Officially, they, I, I had heard Friday night from, from Kelvin that, um, that Bradley had, had quit the team. He didn't know Gervin Hall had as well, but essentially um, you know, Miami has now had seven players uh, transfer out of the program in season. Uh, the others, Mark Pope, D Wiggins, Kylie on Herbert, uh, Jeremiah Payton and Quinton Williams, four starters really. Cause Jennings started 11 games last year, hall 18 in his career. And then Wiggins and Pope were starters obviously before uh, Miami went out and recruited some better receivers, but, just for some perspective, because I know it's really easy here all the time. Oh, seven players are leaving this and that. I looked it up. I looked up, uh, I went to the transfer report on two, four, seven sports. And I said, let me see where Miami ranks, right? Like how, seven transfers in the middle of the season. Is that horrible? Is that average? Is that average? What is it? Well, just going through the ACC. Okay. There's 40 kids who have transferred out of the ACC or hit the transfer portal that are, that are from the ACC teams. Florida State and Miami each have had seven. Syracuse has had seven. North Carolina, six. Clemson, four. Virginia, two. Pitt, two. Georgia Tech, two. Louisville, one. Virginia Tech, one. Boston College, one. And then Duke, NC State, and Wake Forest haven't had anybody transfer out. So, yes, it, it is tops amongst the ACC. And I said, all right, well, let's talk about state schools. UCF, six. Florida, three. USF, two. FIU, two. FAU, two. Um, the national powers, the contenders, right? Ohio State has had three. Oklahoma's had two, Alabama's had one, Oregon has had one, Texas A&M has had one, and Georgia zero. Other notable teams, former champions like Miami trying to find their way, Tennessee five, Washington four, Texas four, and nobody yet from USC, which was kind of shocking. But the, the point is, yes, Miami has among the most in the country. Um, and just, I didn't check every single fucking team. It's way too much work. Yeah, no, it's a lot. Okay, but I, I, I try to give you some perspective. Uh, they're not alone. The whole point is they're not alone. People, people are leaving in the middle of the season. That is something that every coach is dealing with nowadays. And, you know, I, I tend to think a lot of these guys, and you look, the Florida schools have a lot. What do the Florida schools have in common? They have Florida recruits in common. <laughs> and how often do we see kids transferring at the high school level in the state of Florida? Yeah. So, again, um, yes, does it suck that players want to leave? Do you want to hold on to guys? Sure. Uh, in this case, I don't think Miami's crying over anybody that left. Exactly. I think it's one of these things where it's addition by subtraction, right? Especially when it comes to Mark Pope, D. Wiggins, and Gervin Hall. Those three guys, they weren't happy with a reduced role, and it was clear for Gervin Hall that his role was going to continue to diminish and be only ba basically playing on special teams, and the other two weren't even getting on the field. They were even sniffing the field. So those guys needed to go because they were being cancers in the locker room, essentially. Um, you know, Kylie and Herbert also never sniffed the field. 
He's one of uh, Kelvin's favorite players to never mention his name. Right. He only uses jersey numbers. Um, you know, Quinton Williams a little bit of a surprise. I thought he left a little bit early. He could have hung in there and seen if more playing time developed. I thought he had a chance to maybe get on the field a little bit more. Um, and and uh, who are the other guys? Uh, for Miami? Bradley Jennings, to me, yeah. is a surprise because he was actually playing. Mm-hmm. He was splitting reps with Corey Flagg. He wasn't getting a 50-50, but he was in there about 30 35% of the snaps. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I sat there. I usually chart this in the beginning of the year and I go game by game and I put the snap counts and the grades from PFF and I just so I can study. OK, well, who's playing more week to week to week this year? Because the season went off the rails so early and they were I kind of was like, yeah, this isn't really something to talk about. Right. But, you know, three games left. I charted it just to sort of study. How did the coaches handle all this at linebacker? The Keontra Smith injury was significant. Right. He, he was yeah. he was done after two games, missed the next four, came back and really has not played well at all. And I think that's been an issue. Yeah. Um, but Miami has continued to play him. OK, 27 snaps, 39 snaps, 51 snaps, 39 snaps. Basically, what you have is a five man rotation at linebackers at, at, before Bradley Jennings quit. You had a six man rotation at linebacker. But now it's five when you count striker. So between Corey Flagg, Amari Carter, Wayman Steed, Gilbert Farson, and Keontra Smith, those are the guys that are playing a ton. Ragoni played eight snaps this game. He played five at Pitt, which ate into Jennings' snaps. He only played seven. Jennings only played seven at Pitt. Well, Jennings got hurt against Pitt, didn't he? I don't know if he did or he didn't. The point is he transferred after Pitt. <laughs> right. So yeah. So maybe his getting off the field wasn't a, an injury necessarily? No. And, and really what happened to him is the moment that Keontra Smith came back, that's when the coaches were like, no, nah, all right, we're, we're giving Keontra those snaps. And that's and so he went from 23. He went from having 27, 18, 20, 23 and 16 snaps the first five games in the season to 10, 13 and seven, 30 snaps mm-hmm. over three games. So he just wasn't playing and he wanted to leave. And then Gervin Hall, uh, you know, he lost his starting uh, spot, I think, around the Virginia game right after that. Right after. Um. And so his playing time went from 69, 74, 67, and then he was hurt against Central Connecticut State or suspended. Then he played 64 against Virginia to 19, 1, and then 21 at Pitt. So his last three games, like the message was kind of sent to him, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and the only reason he ended up playing against Pitt was because Bubba Bolden missed that game, was out for the year after that. Right. So, um, again, you know, you want to talk about what happens, what goes through a player's mind. Um, why they enter the transfer portal, you know, team camaraderie, all those kind of things, right? Like you want to be there with your teammates. You can have a great leader in De'Aaron King, right? He can come in and help galvanize the locker room. But the honest to God truth is when you're losing and playing mediocre football, you're susceptible. Like yeah, any, any kid ultimately is going to put themselves first. And what situation can I go to to play? And that's what happened with those guys. And Manny Diaz, you know, basically cut their playing time and, and, um, him and his coaches. And, and so that's the situation with those two guys. Um, one, one thing I did want to talk about before we get to the mailbag, I, I did a whole breakdown with the offensive line because Garen justice uh, spoke to reporters yesterday. I wasn't there. I didn't drive down to Miami yesterday, but I, I saw the video. Um, and so I have some notes here of what's really changed, uh, for Miami over the past five games. Number one, the play calling has been completely different for, for quarterback Tyler Van Dyke. Okay. Uh, which has allowed Miami's linemen to block more efficiently. Uh, Garen just has talked about it. Essentially, with the RPO game, mm-hmm. uh, 
Miami's only having to do drop back passing like 10 to 12 snaps a game. Everything else is coming out of the RPO, which allows Miami's offensive line to run block and right. push, push linemen in the other direction. So that, that from that perspective, and then, you know, the juggling of the lineups, the three, the first three games of the season, they've basically had the same starting five since the central Connecticut state game. And the right side of the line has been really, really good. Okay. Um, for instance, Jared Williams, best grade, uh, pro football focus, 87.1. Okay. Which is elite seventh best overall grade among 300 and 91 offensive linemen to play at least 200 snaps in power five conferences this year. He's given up one sack and five pressures in 269 blocking snaps flagged just twice. Only NC State's uh, Ikem Iquanu, okay, the kid who everybody yep. is thriving, you know, he's going to be a draft pick and the whole thing. He's the only guy who's grading better than Jared Williams right now. And then DJ Scaife, um, 77.7 grade at right guard. He was a disaster last year. Yeah. What happened? They moved him back from tackle to guard after he was benched. Both of those guys, um, you know, Scaife, if you remember, he was benched after 13 snaps against Alabama. Yep. Garrett Williams didn't start the season. And Garen Justice this week basically took ownership of, hey, when Zion Nelson was dinged up in camp in August, we had to move guys around. And that screwed everything up, basically, because yeah. you had Scaife at right tackle. You had Jared Williams at left tackle. And then when the season began, they're like, well, Jared's not good enough pass protector with De'Ara King in there. Once the scheme changed, once the quarterback changed, once, you know, Things sort of settled out after the Michigan State game. They figured it out. And it's 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 one of those shames where when you when you review it and you say, man, why are they so much better? Like, had they been playing this scheme with Tyler Van Dyke from the beginning of the year and had the offensive line set, like if Zion Nelson doesn't come into camp hurt, maybe they play so much better against Alabama. Maybe they play a lot better against yeah. Michigan State. Maybe they dominate Appalachian State instead of escaping against. Like, you, you have to play the maybe game. Because that, to me, was really what was hampering the offense the first three weeks of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what people don't realize is, you know, I think Zion's injury was a foot injury, right? So uh, the issue there for an offensive lineman, especially at a tackle, is when you have a foot injury, it's hard for you to get a post leg, which means that that leg that you stand on, that you really power off of. Um, and then also it's very difficult for you to do what's called kick slide, which is when you're in your pass protection sliding to get to meet that defensive end. So that slowed Zion down. So he wasn't as good as he's been now recently in pass protection. I think the other thing that's surprising about Jared Williams is he's always been a good pass protector, but he's taken it to another level recently. And his run blocking the last few games, I believe, has gotten a lot better, correct? Yeah, that's they're all the right side of the offensive line for Miami. And there's this, this is another staff from Pro Football Focus. Um, Miami's run for 710 yards or 5.3 yards per carry on direct handoffs to the right side of its offensive line this season, behind yep. Scaife and Williams primarily. Yeah. Whereas when they run to the left, it's 4.7 yards per carry, 533 yards total on handoffs to the left. So those two guys side-by-side side together, which, oh, by the way, that was what they were doing last year, okay? That that has made a big difference. Um, now, the thing is, Miami still ranks last in the ACC in yards per rush. So people, when they look at the, at the categories, oh, they still finished last in rushing. Well, what's the difference? You don't have De'Ara King running for 600 yards anymore. Right. Quarterback is losing yardage. So that's why it's down from 4.24 yards per carry from last year. Um, that has affected things. Um, they were also pretty bad early in the season. They've gotten better now in, in ACC play. Yes. Um, Football Outsiders, okay, which is another one of these metrics websites that charts offensive line metrics. 
shows that Miami's improved since last season in yards per carry, in line yards per carry, meaning right. what is the offensive line responsible for? It's gone from 2.43 uh, line yards per carry to 2.59. Where they've slipped is the power running game, stuff rate, those kind of things. They've gone down, and obviously that was evident against, evident against Georgia Tech. Um, Miami's only picked up a first down on 14 out of 23 attempts when, it, when it's tried to convert a run on third down and three yards or less uh, last season. It was 15 out of 29 and then fourth down this season, Miami's converted three out of seven on short yardage running situations last season. It was 10 out of 15. So, you know, the percentages are lower, which is why their stuff rate and all that kind of stuff is, is well, one of the reasons higher. for that is that now you don't have a quarterback who's a, who's a real running threat. So the defense right. doesn't have to account for him in the run game. The other thing about it is now with Jalen Knight at running back, you have a more slender running back. Who's not a power back. Mm-hmm. It's hard for him to power through there and get that extra yard as opposed to like a Cam Harris, who's right. a thicker back, who's a bowling ball. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, at some point, one of these backup running backs has to emerge, either Cody, Cody Brown or Thad Franklin, to give you a little something in short yardage, to give Jalen Knight in a spell, which goes back to what you were talking about from the press conferences this week. I think at this point it's going to have to be Thad Franklin because Cody Brown has given, been given his shot and he's just not doing it. He's For some reason, he's not running with the same authority that he ran against Central Connecticut and then a game after that where he got a couple carries and looked pretty good coming downhill. It's going to have to be Thad Franklin showing up, but he's got to learn how to pass protect because that's very important, which to me, the most shocking thing that I've seen from Jalen Knighton is he's been very good in pass protection. Mm-hmm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, uh, they've they've done a good job in, in Pass Pro without question. Um, all right, let's get into the mailbag because we got to start to wrap this up. I want to get to Andre's interview in a little bit. Um, but let's get to the mailbag and I'll tell you, there's a, there's one nostalgia question, a whole lot of Manny Diaz coaching change, Blake really James. shocking. Manny Diaz coaching change questions, <laughs> uh, Blake James and the upside down mask. I don't know if you saw that, uh, at the basketball game last night, there's photos <laughs> circulating of, of, of Blake James wearing a, uh, uh, his mask, but the U is upside down. People are calling him out. They're saying, it's not on purpose. Uh, some linebacker stuff and some recruiting transfer portal type thing so let's start with nostalgia carlos this is question number one um what's your favorite game or story of the fsu miami rivalry this is from champa c-h-a-m-p-a bay Kane. wow um two that stand out to me are two games that i went to so i went to the uh the 1992 white right two game uh Mm -hmm. with my older brother and his best friend as we're walking in through the tunnel up to our seats um Tamaric Vanover had just run into the end zone and scored on the opening kickoff. So I was like, oh shit, what the hell's going on here? This can't be a good. Then we ended up seeing one of the biggest hits in hurricane history from Michael Barrow. Um, we saw, you know, just the, the crazy finish down the stretch with that missed kick again to win the game. The other one that comes to mind is the 2000 game, the, the Dorsey to Shockey game. Right. I went with my best friend. I was sitting in the student section and it was literally the hottest game I've ever been to in my life. They ran out of water at halftime, as everybody knows. People were passing out in the stands, and it was just an insane finish to that game. We got out to a lead, thought we were going to take control, and then Florida State comes storming back. And thank God for Dorsey to Shockey, and thank God for them missing another kick to be able to, to finally end that streak. 
Well, for me, obviously, as a fan, it's all those great games in the in the 80s and 90s. But as a reporter, you know, when when Miami and FSU were kind of slipping and going the wrong direction, it, it's just being at Florida State, particularly the game and the ending where Florida State fumbled. And I think Colin McCarthy ran back yeah. a touchdown at the end of that game. I don't even remember what year that was. Was that like 10, 09, 10, somewhere? Yeah, and, and I just remember Miami being down – and the way that they won that game and the way that they celebrated afterward, how happy they were, because at that point, you know, Florida State was still good or at least better than Miami for the most part. Um, and, and, and Miami hadn't won against Florida State in a while. And that was one. And I, I don't remember the exact details, but for some reason today, that's what when I read this question, that's what started to pop into my mind was, you know, how Miami was able to pull out a win in Tallahassee without much offense. Like they didn't even have a quarter. Like that was, I think that was when they were having the issues with quarterback that Kirby Freeman, a quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. They, when they beat them with Kirby Freeman and these guys, and I just, those kind of games, you know, Ja'Cory Harris rallying them in the fourth quarter to win in Tallahassee. I've enjoyed going to Tallahassee for these for these games over the Daryl Langham more more recently with that last second catch. Right. With the catch. Like I've been on the field for a whole lot of those sort of um, dramatic finishes. And so to me, as a reporter, that's what I remember most. But certainly the, all the classic finishes, being in the Orange Bowl in 2000, being on the sideline for, for one of the other wide rights at, at the end when I was actually on the field when Willis McGahee, I think, caught that screen pass. I think it might have yeah. been the 2002 game. That was 2002, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, all of those are great from a young person. But as a journalist, that's what I think about is just how Miami finally was able to, to sort of upset FSU in the in the 2010 type era, uh, and then Jacory uh, Harris. Most most recent bad memory for me is the 2016 game where the Hurricanes battle back, get that score at the end, and Michael Badgley comes up to kick the extra point to tie it, and he doinks it off the upright. Yeah, uh, that was horrible, right? The, the one where – and then at, at Miami in the rain when FSU came in here and beat them. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, the visiting team has had a lot of success in the series. <laughs> Um, all right. That's the nostalgia question. Let's get into some other stuff here. Uh, this is from, uh, Theodore Hutch, AKA Ted's burner account on Twitter. Will Manny Diaz re-examine his defensive scheme. They line up and give up leverage, telegraph blitzes. The D line runs recklessly upfield and the linebackers are always a step behind. Now you and I kind of talked about this in the past, right? Does, do they hire a defensive coordinator? Do you think, Manny would actually tweak the way he is. I don't. I think this is who he is no matter what. He is going to be an aggressive play caller who's going to telegraph blitzes. Yeah. I, I, I just don't see him changing. That's who he is. That's his defensive style. Now, when you have better personnel, you can hide that better. Uh, and it doesn't look as obvious. And the guys, when they're in the right gaps, it ends up working for the most part. But when you have a defensive line that's pushing up field and they're trying to create chaos because their whole purpose is to reset the line of scrimmage two to three yards back into the offense's backfield, and you don't have linebackers that fill the right gaps and the secondary to, to fill their run fits and pursue, then you have a problem. Um, I think for the scheme to change, it, it would have to be a different a different defensive coordinator. Now, I don't think it'll be completely changed. I think it'll be tweaked here and there and adjusted to fit that defensive coordinator style, but I don't think Manny himself is going to change his, his own system. Um, I was listening to a podcast uh, from my colleagues at The Athletic, uh, Bruce Feldman and Stuart Mandel, um, and they were talking about Gary Patterson and how he's, you know, now mm -hmm. former TCU coach. Will he just accept a head coaching job? Could he potentially be like a defensive coordinator in the SEC? It'd be awesome. 
if Miami went out and paid Gary Patterson to come in and be DC. Oof, that would be Manny's last chamber, like bullet in the chamber. Yeah. Release that last bullet that he has to try and save himself and really keep get an extension. If he goes out and gets Gary Patterson and hires him as a defensive coordinator, that's something special. Gary Patterson is one of the best defensive minds in the country. And I think it, it, it would it would be an injection of fresh blood, obviously, in, in the sense that, you know, this guy has been a head coach. He would only have to zero in on being a defensive coordinator. He wouldn't have to worry about all the crap that has to do with NIL. And and, and he could just come in and be your your play caller. Now, I know Manny adds an experienced voice to Manny to help him with with the head coaching duties. Right. And, and, and I know right now Bob Shoup is kind of that guy for Manny, him and Ed Reed. Um, but. I, I think that that might be something, you know, Manny entertains, right? I mean, why not? Why not entertain bringing in some some proven guy? Uh, I guess you could be worried that, oh, well, they'll just fire me and make Gary Patterson head coach. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't know. I just I think, you know, if, if you're the administration here at Miami and you're serious about winning, maybe that's a chess move for you. I don't know. I think All the more right. likely move is they, they hire Bob Shoup or uh, T-Rob takes over one of the two. Yeah. All right. Now, this is this is I, I lump these questions together because really it's just fans bitching about Manny Diaz. All right. Should Manny be gone regardless of the outcome of the season going by his track record since he's been here and the regression of the defense as well? Also, would the school take that into consideration if they're serious as it is rumored to be that they are? This is from Tyler T.O. Bell, 94, a.k.a. LTO official. That's one comment. I'm just going to read these together. So these. People yeah, because it's like, basically I, the same question, just phrased differently. Yeah. Have you made se- or this is a person saying you've made several allusions to the fact the university would do what it takes to land Cristobal. I'm happy that Coach Diaz has won some games recently, but he could win out and I'd still hire Cristobal. If we can upgrade, we upgrade. Why is this even up for debate? That's David Engelson uh, with the underscore between on Twitter. And then Dabo Sweeney went four and three, nine and five, six and seven. His first three years with a one and two bowl record almost was fired. He got that one class in 2011 and the rest is history. Not comparing Manny Diaz to Dabo, but this last class for Manny Diaz could be the turning point like it was with Dabo. Do you agree or see any similarities? This is from Dan Thames. So I lumped these all together only because those are all thoughts related to the coaching hire and potentially, you know, Manny turning it around. Your reaction to that commentary, first of all. Well, I said at the beginning of the year that this could be comparable to Dabo's uh, third year, right? Like I've said that, that people had to give Dabo some time to turn things around. If they had cut bait with him earlier, they wouldn't have two national championships at Clemson if they weren't patient. Um, I think Dabble's first third, I think third season, is it the first full third season or just his third season in general? He finished 10 and four uh, with a bowl win. So if Manny Diaz ends up somehow running the table the rest of the way and they get into that ACC title, win the championship and win the bowl game, they end up 10 and four. Um, To me, do you fire Manny no matter what he does? I think that doesn't make any sense. I think at the end of the day, if you do that, if a coach ends up winning nine games or 10 games in a season and you fire him because you want a better option, nobody's going to trust you uh, to come down here ever again, right? Like what's the, what coach would come down here and say, okay, I've got job security unless a prettier name becomes available and then I'm gone. Um, that's, that's not how you treat people. First of all, it's not professional. It's not ethical. And it definitely doesn't attract good candidates. Uh, why not go out and get Mario now? What's to say that Mario wants to come right now? Uh, what's to say that it's the right situation? I think at the end of the day, it would give Mario pause if they fired Manny Diaz after a 9-10 and 10 win season to say, oh, hold on a second here. Uh, what if a bigger name than me or somebody they fall in love with after me, like Lane Kiffin, becomes available? Uh, would they bring him and get me out of here? So I, I don't think that's the way you operate. At the end of the day, the bottom line is people are too focused on their hate for Manny Diaz and not focused on the results on the field and what ends up happening with this team. 
there's an old saying by a, uh, a, a, a guy that's sort of a new agey um, philosopher that I, that I liked that who passed away, Dr. Wayne Dyer. He used to be a psychotherapist. Okay. And he has a saying that says, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And that's the thing that Kings fans are going through. They would rather be right and be miserable than be happy and enjoy the team winning, which to me is mind boggling. Because at the end of the day, what you really want is for them to win. Who cares who the head coach is? It's not about the head coach. You know what? You could bring back Larry Coker right now. And if they went 11 and 0, 12 and 0, 14 and 0, and won a national championship, I'm praising him. It's great. That's what we want. I don't care who the head coach is. Just get the results on the field, get the job done. And you have to at least be, be happy that things are trending upward right now and going in the right direction and stop pissing on the parade and thinking about, oh, but Alabama, oh, Michigan State. That's in the past, man. We're going in a different direction now. Now, if he ends up tanking the rest of the season and the team looks like crap, then he deserves to be fired. But until he deserves it, until these players give up on him and he continue or he shows the need to get rid of him immediately, then let's just ride the wave and be happy, bro. I'm glad you brought all that up, uh, Carlos, because I think you're right. I, I think and, and it's, it's funny that I didn't even realize I had something in common with that philosopher. Um, <laughs> I was talking to. Kelvin Harris, of course, uh, earlier today. And he says, well, what happens if Manny runs the table? And what happens, you know, if they win the ACC title? And what happens if they win the bowl game and they get 10 wins? And, I, and my response to him was, fans will just shrug their shoulders and say that Clemson wasn't good enough this year and the ACC was weak. Yep. And exactly. he says, why? And I said, because people would rather be right than happy. Mm -hmm. And this is so much about, hey, I pegged it. The moment they lost to FIU, I knew he wasn't a good coach. Yeah. And the one thing I'll say in, in adding all this, and I'm not here to defend Manny Diaz. I know that a lot of you are going to turn off the podcast because I just said what I said. And that's fine. Those of you that, that, that don't want to listen. And, and contrary to the rumors that we are part of the Cuban Illuminati defending Manny Diaz <laughs> is part of our job. That is not true. Also, we just want to see the team win. Yeah, I, I think we all just want to see Miami have success. I, I want to see my subscription numbers go up. That would help. Um, what, I, what I will say about this is um, there's nothing linear about having success anymore in college football, right? Yeah. Like, I, I think we, we could all sit here before and say, hey, you know what? In the 1980s, 1990s, if you came to Miami and you couldn't win with the talent that you had, you, well, you shouldn't be a coach here, right? Like, there was a tradition in place. This is... Manny Diaz has taken over a train that has gone off the rails long ago. And to get back to winning championships, he needs to recruit an elite level. He needs to coach an elite level. He needs to develop players in an elite level. And right now there's zero momentum. There's really zero momentum. Like, yes, there's still kids locally who want to come play for Miami, but none of them were born or alive the last time Miami won a national championship. And that is a hurdle that not just as Manny Diaz, failed the cross so far but so did al golden and so did mark Richt, and so did randy shannon and so did larry coker who yep. had momentum okay he took over a championship winning program so again to me like if manny diaz can find his way somehow some way after after basically being on the brink of being fired to figuring it out and winning with this roster and recruiting well and having a great recruiting class next year and killing it in the chat. Like who cares? Who's the guy making the decisions? Yes. Who cares if you said that Manny Diaz should be fired? Like nobody's going to sit here and turn around and say, Oh, but you said he should have been fired. Like, like all of a sudden you think your life, your, your life's going to be ruined because Manny Diaz turns it around. 
because you thought you called it and then all of a sudden you didn't. I mean, first of and, all, and everybody I, was talking shit about Dabble this way when he was first hired as a head coach because he got elevated from the defensive coordinator position and he was basically meh, how average. Many, how many people talk shit about Butch Davis? Oh, dude, come on! They were flying banners for Butch Davis over the Orange Bowl. I, 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 I again, I, I totally agree that people would rather be right than happy. And again, Miami could lose this weekend. They could lose to Florida State. This is a very losable. Yeah. <laughs> like this game, they could lose very easily. Um, and it could all fall apart. And and maybe you know all of you will be right come Monday. Yep. You know what? They got killed by Florida State. And they're five and five and fire this guy. Right. Okay. But what if he wins? What if he wins that game and he wins Virginia tech and he beats Duke and he gets to the ACC championship game with this team that was supposed to look completely different. Yep. Uh, You can't just fire somebody because you're you're unhappy with, with what you saw in the beginning. Like look at a lot of programs around college football right now. There are a lot of people struggling Florida. Uh, not too long ago was celebrating the fact that they almost beat Alabama. Where are they now? Yep. Um, and many Kings fans the- wanted Dan Mullen instead of Manny Diaz. So this thing can switch. And again, I'm not here to, to, to prop up Manny Diaz and say he's the right guy because I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. I've called the guy a buffoon before on this podcast because of the way he handled the Jared Williams situation two years ago. Jared Williams, not Jared. Jared's the good Williams. Um, Jaron Williams and the whole quarterback fiasco that happened. Um, but you know, let's see what happens. Let's let, let's let the season ride out before um we make a final diagnosis, and that's what the administration is doing anyway. They're letting yep. him they're letting him coach it out here and see what he does. Um, all right, that moves on from that topic. <laughs> this is this is kind of unique. Your thoughts on Blake James's upside down U mask at the basketball game Tuesday night? Unintentional. Or a subtle intended message. This is from Left Coast Paco. This is one of those Kananon type questions, right? Like we're going deep into Kane conspiracy theory because he had the mask backwards and the U was down. So he's <laughs> basically saying, yeah, he's like basically saying, hey, I'm out of here at the end of the year after December 31st, January 1st, I got to clean my office out. So screw you, Canes. I'm going to do everything I can to make you look bad through these subtle innuendos. Yep. Uh, I don't see it as a big deal at all. No, I think I uh, just stupidly put the mask on backwards. Yeah, like really, I think the bigger thing here is everybody just wants Blake gone and literally will look for any little sign. Yeah. Uh, putting yeah. the U backwards, no. he. I think he likes his job. He wants to keep it if, he, if possible. All right, what is going on with linebacker? This is from JL Valero 81. Um, there's a couple of linebackers. Let's dive into why the linebacker group is the only position group not playing young guys. They're struggling with the playbook. Uh, line is old. Um, that, that seems to be code for they're better than the old guys in front, but we aren't playing them. Happened at every position so far, except linebacker. This is from Kane underscore biz three, AKA CE Bauer jr. And then one more comment, Manny with the shit show going on with football in the state of Florida at all the schools, what are sunshine state recruits going to do on early Sunday? Well, that's, that's not linebacker related. We'll get to that in a minute, but the two linebacker related questions, we kind of dove into this earlier. Here's how I'm going to address this one sort of last time I went to the transfer portal and I looked up how many linebackers are in there right now. And this is all I wanted to discuss because it's with this, because we already kind of hammered the other point. There are 37 linebackers in the transfer portal right now, two, four stars, 25, three stars, seven, two stars, and three guys with no stars. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of great options. Okay, the two four-star kids, Tennessee. The, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. What is what's how many stars does the kid from UCF have? He's a three-star kid. He's an experienced. He's the most experienced player. Eric Gilliard. He's 5'11", 225. Played close to sixteen hundred snaps. Started twenty-two games. But you look at his grade. Not that great. Below average every single year. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to find Ray Lewis in there. Um, the two four-star kids, okay, they're both young guys. One of them's from Lakeland, the kid out of Tennessee, Morvin Joseph, played 16 snaps against Tennessee Tech, 36 snaps in 2020, one sack as a pass rusher, um, inside linebacker in 2021. So, again, this is just another Avery Huff, another mm-hmm. uh, project, so to speak. The kid out of Texas A&M, Antonio Doyle, 6'3", 250. Four games for the Aggies this year, including 27 snaps against South Carolina as a backup. I played a total of 43 snaps, eight career tackles in eight games. He's uh, FSU, SMU, Colorado, Purdue, Missouri, and Illinois are on him. Um, the kid I like the most on paper is this Dallas Gantt kid out of Ohio State. 6'3", 235, played a total of 254 snaps at Ohio State in four years. He's an older kid. Kind of to me, he could replace um, Corey Flag. Uh, not Corey Flag. Uh, the other kid, the other 44 who just left, Bradley Jennings. Bradley Jennings. Yeah. Um, he's from Toledo, appeared in three games off the bench in 2021. Um, 27 career tackles, four missed tackles, two years of eligibility left. Um, limited by a foot injury in spring practice, and then basically, uh, you know, was, was a bench guy. 54 tackles, three and a half for loss, one and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, and 36 games at Ohio State. I think raw ingredients, I would probably take that kid because he's got two years of eligibility left, kind of like a Justice Oluwasun on the offensive line, right? A mm-hmm. guy that you see what he can give you the first year and then the second year. Um, but I went through it, uh, skimmed through it, looked at different guys. There's a kid out of LSU. Um, uh, let me see what his name is. Uh, Navantique Strong, 6'2", 220. Started two games this year, played 161 snaps. He was the number one Juco linebacker in the country. Um, and then now he's in the transfer portal. I think Gant and the strong kid are the two best linebackers. Available. So to answer your question, ladies and gentlemen, in a long winded way is, uh, you better hope Deshaun Troutman <laughs> or Justin Medlock that's coming this season or Justin uh, Medlock coming in this year. Um, because you're not going into the trans like the Henry Toto kid going to Alabama. Like that's a special situation. Yeah. Very rarely will you find a legit number one linebacker in the transfer portal. A lot of what you're seeing, and again, I haven't looked at all 37 guys. I made my way through about half. Um, I just kind of gave you a good scouting report, right, of what's at the tip top of, of those guys. Four I think if they end up going in the portal for a linebacker like that, it's going to be like a guy, like you said, to replace Bradley Jennings snaps. I have a rotation guy in there, not necessarily a starter. And then see what shakes out with Medlock, if the Saints comes, and see if Corey Flagg can somehow get more athletic next year. All right. I hope that answers the linebacker question, plus what we gave you at the top of the podcast. All right. Um, this person asked, with the shit show going on with football in the state of Florida at all the schools, what are the Sunshine State re- recruits going to do on early signing day? This is from Elroy Cohen, 1970. Uh, Elroy, um, I think a lot of kids, and, and there's still a lot of South Florida kids uncommitted. Um I think a lot of kids in the state of Florida, when it comes to Florida, when it comes to Miami, when it comes to Florida State, there may not be guys signing un- until February, like December's coming. But if they have 
Miami or Florida, Florida State on their minds as a serious school that they want to go to. I think they're going to wait to see what happens with the coaches. And I think they're going to be encouraged to wait to see what happens with the coaches. Yeah. Because if Dan Mullen gets fired and um, Manny Diaz gets fired and Mike Norvell, you know, is under duress because they don't make a bowl game again. Like, is that a situation? Does that look like a good situation to walk into? I think these kids uh, are going to be patient. I think a lot of them might wait till February. And so that's that's my take on it. Agree or disagree? I agree. I agree. And, and it would be smart for them to do that. Like you said, why why jump the gun if you can wait till February and see how it all shakes out and then see who the next staff that comes in is good to take over and, and see if I fit that system and fit their style and if it's a right fit for me personally. But who knows? All right. Um, any updates on recruiting from Firdo 60? Uh, do you see this recruiting class falling apart if we part ways with Manny Diaz? Does the class stay together or get better if we get Mario Cristobal? This is from Jamrock 1986, a.k.a. Oregon Kane. There's no updates. They haven't signed anybody since or got any commitment since August 11th. And I think uh, in Miami's situation, I think, again, we just talked about it. I think there's a lot of recruits that are waiting to see what's going to happen with Miami's coaching staff. And yep. does it stick? Uh, Manny Diaz, that was one of the things he brought up on Monday. He was asked by David Lake from 247 Sports if Blake's comments prior to the NC State game when he said he couldn't guarantee that Manny would finish the season, or at least didn't say that he would finish the season. Um, you know, Manny basically said, yeah, if I was a coach in another school, I'd be using that against us, you know. Um, so that's something I think, yeah, I, I don't see them adding any recruits. Wesley Besaint is going to announce at some point this month. And so that is kind of the next big domino in terms of big time guys. He's supposed to announce at some point this month. Um, he's the four star linebacker out of Miami Central. So we'll see what he announces. But I think this game here is also very important for recruiting for both teams. Yeah, he's going to be at the game in Tallahassee, by the way. There are a few local kids that are there. FSU, by the way, 13th ranked class, 16 commitments and four guys from Dayton Broward. Manny Diaz can't shake this stat. He's got nobody from Dayton Broward right now in his class. And I know they intended to sign the elite kids only. They're not looking to just take everybody. Right. But I mean, Florida state for all the crap that he talked in, in, in June about fake momentum and being uh, authentic and all this, they're holding on to the recruits right now, even though they're three and six and they've well, got let's four. see if they get stomped on Saturday. Let's see if they hold we, on. Still. We, we will see what happens with them. All right. This is the last question. This is from money. Kane. Can you give us the way too early top transfer portal targets? And was the rate of and what is the rate of attrition or last three classes? All right. Well, if you find my article at theathletic.com, I wrote about attrition in the last in the 2017, 2018, and 16 classes, and I don't have it in front of me. I know in the 2020 class, they they just lost their first kid from the 2020 class. That was Quentin Williams. Mm -hmm. um, let me look at 2019 right in front of me. Um, if I can call up the class really now, quickly. I'll go to the, the transfer portal targets. I don't think there's names that we can go to right now that we are right off the top of our head, but I can tell you positions that I think they need to go and, and try and get someone. Um, I think defensive tackle, especially a run stuffing defensive tackle to replace John Ford is important because there's not that guy on the roster right now to replace him because Leonard Taylor, uh, Gerard, Jared Harrison hunt. Um, those guys are more pass rushing defensive tackles than they are run stuffers. So we need some big defensive tackles. I think one to two would be great. Um, if you can't get it through the portal, hopefully this Juco kid they've been after, they sign him. I think you need corners, I think at least one experienced corner because Tyreek Stevenson is leaving after this year. If you could pick up a guard uh, in the transfer portal on the offensive side, I'd, I'd like to see a guard 
to get in that rotation and mix it in with uh, with Oluwusu and everybody else that's in the mix on the offensive line. All right, 2019 class. All right, <clears throat> they signed 18 high school kids, eight transfers. Jeremiah Payton gone. Christian Williams gone. Keontra Smith still here. Avery Huff still here. Jafari Harvey still here. Jason Blissett gone. So we're three to three. To Corey Couch here four to three. Cameron Williams gone four to four. Jared Harrison Hunt still here five to four. Larry Hodges still here six to four. Sam Brooks still here seven to four. Jalar Hawley gone seven to five. Usman Treyar still here eight to five. Adam El Gamal I think he's gone, so I'm going to say eight to six. Zion Nelson nine to six. Jakai Clark ten to six. Peyton Matoka eleven to six, and Lou Hadley twelve to six. So attrition. Usually the number, in all honesty now, is you keep about 66% of your class, 60, 65, 66. The best schools, the one that win championships, usually hold on to 70, 75, 80% of their kids. Um, you can go find the articles from Max Olson. He does the four years later recruiting piece at The Athletic. Great job. And I kind of do that for Miami. My articles on Miami are specifically there as well. But um, you know, attrition is a normal thing in college football. Now guys are going to leave, whether it's through the transfer portal, whether them getting kicked off the team, it's a shame, but you know, you, that's why when, when people bring up recruiting classes and recruiting class rankings, Carlos, when they're like, Oh, but we were the 13th ranked class in the, Oh, but we were the 16th. If you've already lost six of the 18 high school guys, you signed in a class that ranked 27th. What do you think your real class ranking should be? You think it should still be 27th? Probably not. So that's why you can sit here and say Miami's had the best recruiting classes. Okay, sure. How many of those guys are still here? How many been their on-field production since they've been here? Right. That is a much more bigger deal than whatever their class is ranked. Um, and and to be fair, um, you know, when Georgia or Alabama or Ohio State, you know, lose seven out of their twenty-five guys that they sign every year. They still keep 18 five-star or 18 four-star kids. Right. Miami gets a handful of those guys every year. And when one of them doesn't pan out, like a Lorenzo Lingard, like a Jeremiah Payton, like a Christian Williams, that's a big hit because those are kids that affect the class rankings because they're the highest-ranked kids in the class. So, again, guys, I I just ask you guys to use common sense and think before you say things or just assume things because – when it comes to recruiting rankings and attrition and all that, Miami has been hammered by it over the years. And it, and listen, the coaches deserve the blame, right? They didn't develop those guys. They weren't able to keep them. Whatever the case is, the coaches have to live with it. But I think we also need to remember when we talk about Miami has all this talent. No, nah, dude, it's not like not like the old days. Yeah, Not nearly. Just look at the NFL draft year in and year out. Is it the same? Not even close. So. Uh, until you get a coach who brings in those kind of players again, until you start, until you start recruiting like Alabama, Ohio State, um, and and Georgia, you're not going to win national championship. That's just my mind. That that has to be first and foremost at the front. Yeah, every coach looks a hell of a lot better when you have better players. Yeah. All right, that's going to wrap it up, Carlos, for you and me today. I'm going to get to my interview with Andre Fernandez, uh, talking about FSU Miami. Hope you guys enjoyed this segment, Carlos. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, man. Please ask Andre what it's like working on the Death Star and uh, what it's like being employed by the Empire now. <laughs> we'll ask. <laughs> what is your prediction for Saturday? What's your score? Uh, I'm not going to give a score. I'll say Canes win by seven. All right. I have the Canes winning by a field goal. Again, another sweat it out. Uh, wait till the final play. 
game because that's just that's right. just that, the way they roll. And that's exactly what my heart and my ulcer need uh, this Saturday. Just another one of these where I'm just right screaming at the television. I'm at the edge of my seat, and my daughter and wife think I'm insane. Always fun, Carlos. Talk to you next week, buddy. All right, man. Let's do it. All right. As promised, we are going to talk Florida State and break down what's going on with the rivals, with the with that team up north. And I figured there's nobody better really to bring on to talk about the Seminoles than somebody I've known now for, I don't know, 30 years, 25 years. It feels like forever. Uh, Andre Fernandez, my wingman, my partner, one of my best friends, uh, Miami native. I'm sure you've heard of him before. He was the high school writer at the Miami Herald for a long time, covered a ton of recruiting, graduated from the U. And now he's on the other side of the rivalry covering FSU for the Tallahassee Democrat, Dre. Thanks for coming on wide, right? Did, I'm sure you're going to piss off FSU people coming on a Miami podcast, correct? Well, hopefully I don't piss you off by saying it's about time you have me on this thing. I mean, it only <laughs> takes me moving all the way to Tallahassee, 450 miles away to finally get on this pod. I mean, like you just told people we're thick as thieves and, we're, right. and, and it, we've known each other for 22 years. But, and and now I get I have to go cover the Seminoles to finally get on this thing. Well, listen, let's face it. You've covered <laughs> you've covered so many things over the years. But college football, really, I mean, other than pinch hitting every now and then, this is the first time you've really devoted yourself full time to covering a college beat. Kel- I just wanted to give you crap because Kelvin and Kelvin was right. all for it. You know, he had me on his thing the other day and, and right. I told him, I'm going to give Navarro some crap over not having me on his show. Well, listen, I'm glad that I finally get you on here as you cover um, the Seminoles. And we we knew, you know, going in as soon as you took over uh, the beat over there, uh, over there with your buddy, Kurt Weiler, I, that, mm. that, you know, we were going to get you on at some point here. And this seems like the perfect time, right? FSU week. I mean, why would you have you on any earlier? I don't know. But maybe. No, no. <laughs> I mean, maybe you could have. But you're right. That, that, that would that probably wouldn't have gone over too well up in these parts. If I were right. talking Canes before this week. All right, and I pissed off the whole fan base with some of my tro- my, my Twitter trolling anyway. So, um, yep. but I appreciate you coming on uh, to Wide Right to talk about uh, the Seminoles, who are now three and six. They've lost two in a row uh, after they had that little mini winning streak. Yeah, this is a pivotal game for them, Andre, because they lose and they're no longer bowl eligible. I guess for for the people down here who really, you know, yes, we pay attention to Florida State, but not with great, you know, intensity mm-hmm. like we used to because. I mean, let's face it, three and six versus five and four. There's really nothing sexy about this game nationally. Well, uh, and, and the sexiness that's been added is all on the Kane side lately. Right. I mean, before that, we were headed for three and six versus three and six. And all of a sudden, we've right. seen what's happened down there. Right. Tyler Van Dyke has come to life. The offense has come to life. And, and they're, and they're you know, skating by uh, some good teams. I mean, uh, Georgia Tech, not so much, but certainly NC State and Pitt were, were two mm-hmm. viable victories. I guess I guess my first question to you is how intense, how red hot is the situation for Mike Norville? This is only year two for him, but they were terrible last year. They raided the transfer portal this year, brought in a whole bunch of veterans and they're three and six and they're potentially going to miss a bowl game again. Is there patience in Tallahassee or is there growing impatience? I'm going to give you an example that you're going to like because I know you're a fan of The Walking Dead. You know when all the walkers are out the outside the fence and you hear them, it's like and they're like right. waiting, but the fence is fine, the fence is gonna hold. Right. That's how it is right now up here with him. The fence is holding. Okay. But if this happens again next year, it's gonna happen just like Alexandria. That fence is gonna cave in, and then we're gonna have issues. And I think because I think there's some people 
like with any fan base, there's some people that are already tired of the losing. They don't want to hear any more excuses. They want they don't want moral victories anymore. But the concrete answer is they just bought out Willie Taggart. They're still paying a relatively new contract with Mike Norvell. So they don't want to have to go through the same thing, put themselves in even more of a financial strain to get rid of him right now. And I think the general feeling on the positive end with him is that the, the culture feels different up here. It feels like if you look at FSU, yes, they've lost a lot of close games, but that's the whole thing. They keep, they, they've shown a resilience that you haven't seen these last few years with them in a lot of these games. They just don't have the talent yet. That's, and that's the thing. A lot, of it, a lot of this is going to depend on what kind of recruiting classes they can put together. And I say classes, plural, because they're all excited about this one coming in right now, if they can hold it. But it's not just this year. This is going to take at least probably three or more to sustain something to get them back, not even get them back to the heyday, but get them back to maybe kind of where like Miami was going into this season, where you're a ranked team with realistic thoughts of contending for the conference, that sort of thing, just to get back to that. And I think as of right now, you see a lot of things off the field with Mike Norvell that have earned the trust of the boosters, you know, the administration, people up here and whatnot. But we know how fickle that can be. And if this, even this season, I think these last three games are still realistically. Yeah. You said that. Yes. Mathematically they're on the verge of bowl elimination, but let's be real. They have to run the table and against Miami, a trip to Florida, even though Florida's in shambles, but it's still a trip to the swamp and then a road trip to BC. It's going to be tough, but I feel like it's still very important for them to avoid going three and nine and just bottoming out for the rest of the way, because you have to have some positive thing going into next season for the recruits, for the fan base, for everybody. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but that's your. But basically, that's where Norvell stands right now. I think he's okay for the moment, but again, you you, you see how fickle that could be in college football. Any, if, again, if it carries over next year, I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting situation all three schools are in because just a couple of weeks ago, I mean, I, I did these midseason rankings like the Sunshine State Seven for the yeah. Athletic. And Florida was the number one team in the state because at the time, I think they were four and three and they've since lost. I don't know. Was it four and two? Maybe. I don't I don't know. But the point is, they were they, I think they were the mm -hmm. only team above 500. Um, and all of a sudden they've lost three in a row, including the South Carolina. Um, yeah. Miami's won three in a row. FSU's lost a couple in a row. But everybody kind of stinks. You know, UCF isn't even really that good right now. USF is way down. They're trying to get their, you know, they're in their second year with their new coach. Numbers-wise, I think FAMU has the best record of any state school. It's like they're like eight and two or seven and two, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it feels That's how like bad it's gotten. it feels like everything is up for grabs. And in a lot of ways, in my perspective, this real this game on Saturday, and I know Florida State still has to play Florida at the end of the year, but I think this game on Saturday Saturday could go a long way in determining, okay, well, who's kind of running the state now, you mm -hmm. know, um, because Florida's, you know, they, to me, I, I see a team that's basically quit on Dan Mullen. There's a situation where he could end up right. being fired. Mike Norville's not going to go anywhere. Manny Diaz is still sort of on the hot seat, right? He still has to prove that, that he's worthy of coming back for year four. Yeah. He has to finish strong. So if FSU wins on Saturday, you could potentially make the argument that all of a sudden FSU is back in control because if they finish the year by beating Florida and Miami, I mean, well, yeah, if they, if they do that, if they, if they win both, then you go from like, like all of a sudden you're, I'm going to keep the example going. You're all of a sudden you're sticking spears in those walkers and you're, 
you have nothing to worry about defense holding. All of a sudden, things are getting better. Even though it would be bittersweet if they can't beat BC when they do that and finish five and seven and miss the bowl. I mean, after that, but but to your point, yes, it, they would be. This is the who's trending upward game for sure. Yeah, and if Miami wins and Manny Diaz wins and they win out the season, then all of a sudden you can say, "Well, hell, they they're really in control now, right? They're really really the best." Well, hell, they may they may make the ACC title game if they do right that, if, if they, they get if, a little help. So to me, it's it's amazing how this game. Yes, nobody gives a shit about it. It's too. Bad teams, right? Oh, okay, we're on. We're on. We're, I forgot you're at the athletic. We're on HBO. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. Now, now, I'm gonna, now I can do that too. There's, there's essentially, a, you know, a feeling here where this game could swing a lot of things, and 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 for and I think Manny Diaz has more to lose certainly than Mike Norvell because they could still rebound, beat Florida at the end of the year, and that could be their Super Bowl, right? That could be, yeah. hey, we beat the Gators. Um, Anyway, just food for thought for listeners because it, it is such a unique situation. Which could kick the Gators out of a bowl game too. Remember, they're four right. and five now. Right, and 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 so that game ultimately will be bigger. But right now, I think Miami has the opportunity to seize control, and so does Florida mm-hmm. State in a lot of ways. They yeah. they do too. They win this game, and and let's not forget, there's plenty of reasons for Florida State to be motivated, right? I mean, go back to the summertime, right, and what Manny Diaz was saying about that fake momentum that FSU mm-hmm. had. Well, guess what? The Seminoles still have the 13th ranked recruiting class in the country, according to the 247 Sports Composite, and the number one player in the country, despite yep. being three and six. Despite, yeah, and a lot of those guys uh, have continuously, after bad losses, put out there that they're still sticking with them, that sort of thing, where we thought. This is where they might lose Travis Hunter. This is where they might lose Sam McCall. Maybe somebody, maybe AJ Duffy decides, oh, I'm going somewhere else. Where it may be affecting them a little bit is with uncommitted guys because they haven't really had another home run splash when it comes to a commit lately. But there is a value, obviously, in retaining that core group that they've that they've got right now. And we'll see if these last three weeks, but a win over Miami, you know, or Florida, but sticking to this week. Yeah, I mean, that would score so many points just to see. And I, and I think just generally, man, like, like, yes, being competitive is good. You're not seeing that out of the Gators right now. And that's the difference. Norvell is seeing fight out of his team, even though they're not, they're not winning in terms of talent. They're not matching up in terms of talent. I mean, they're not winning these close games. Last week they had half the team battling the flu, whatnot. They, they, I thought they were going to lose – that game could have gotten ugly. I thought they were going to lose that game. The way NC State came out, they could have put up 35 and buried them, and they didn't. They were within a touchdown in the fourth quarter. So kids are seeing that. Kids are seeing that. They, all those little ingredients factor in, and that's huge for them right now. You know, the state football playoffs uh, uh, begin this week here in Florida, and you and I mm-hmm. for years covered high schools for the Miami Herald, and I, I went out uh, to South Broward yesterday for a story that I'm writing on one of their kids, and I was talking to a ninth uh, a ninth grader. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, well, he's a defensive back. He's a really good player. And he, I said, um, I said, who do you look up to? You know? And he says, Oh, you know, Sean Taylor, Ed Reed. And then he says, James. And I said, James, I said like James Williams. And he goes, yeah, of course. Like, you don't know who James is. Like Miami has a guy now um, between these two teams that is on a first name basis for a lot of local recruits. Um, you know, he's kind of a, a, somebody to look up to. My next question to you is, does Florida State have a James on their roster, a, a, a guy that you think they can build around going forward right now on the roster already or somebody in this recruiting class? Well, 
Okay, two-fold answer there. One is a very similar story to what you're saying I got with Lamont Green Jr. When I went down to Miami to talk to him and do that story on him, we know he's the 2023 commit mm-hmm. for FSU. When I asked him, I was there a D-end or like an edge rusher type guy that you look up to? He gave me, it, I, I swear, he goes, Jermaine. And I'm like, as in Jermaine Johnson, Jermaine? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, I met him on my recruiting visit and this and that. So that's that's the guy right now. Unfortunately, he's leaving. Right. He's going to be gone. James Williams is still going to be around for two more years at Miami. I correct. Think. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a guy on the roster, but I'll tell you the one that will be that guy is Travis Hunter. Assuming nothing changes and in a month he signs and, and ends up in Tallahassee because he's been the recruiter. He's been the like the player recruiter like in terms of like he's talking to all these other commits. He's trying to get un, undecided guys to join up. I think we, we even... We when we talked to Nigel Lee Kelly uh, a few weeks ago when I was down there, um, didn't, I think he was the one. He said that he talked to Travis too, and Travis was right. the one trying to sway him over to FSU. So that's that's definitely the guy. I mean, to me, he's the the key. I know we talk about like the the class itself, but he's the he's the crown jewel, man. He's the, he's the one that has to they have to get him not just in terms of talent, but in the kind of investment and the guy that he's going to be for them. Just in all terms, in terms of like recruiting, you name it. Yeah, I, I think Miami has a couple of those guys now, which is why they're a little further ahead than Florida State in, in, in yeah. terms of their rebuild, because obviously James and probably Leonard Taylor, are the two guys on defense that you say, you know, kids want to play with, right? That They're the alpha that the, the guys look at and say, man, I want to go play with that guy. On the offensive side of the ball, because Tyler Van Dyke has emerged and because Jake Garcia, I think, is still a guy that everybody still sort of loves behind the scenes at Miami. You know, you got the rooster. You got you kind of have building blocks at Miami. I think at Florida State, as you mentioned, there's Jermaine Johnson. But really, they're still looking for that quarterback, right? They're still looking Mm -hmm. for that guy. Jordan Travis, um, I know, missed the last game because of the flu. He looks like he's going to play this week. Mm -hmm. What, do you see AJ Duffy, the, the 2022 recruit? Is he a guy who could who could be a magnet in the recruiting process for them, or do you still think, hey, they still haven't found that guy? They still haven't found their Tyler Van Dyke or their Jake Garcia. I mean, because if you think if you think about it, Tyler Van Dyke, I think Jake Garcia more than Tyler Van Dyke. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was kind of seen as the savior, the great hope kind of guy, wasn't he? Right. Just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But now Tyler that, Van Dyke has proven it with his play on the field that, that you know, right. But yeah. I'm saying it was the unexpected yeah. element in, in that right. sense, like in the timing of it. Right. I think Duffy is kind of more like Van Dyke because I don't know if we know if he's like the savior, the great, great quarterback. He's going to come in. We know he's going to be better than pretty much who they have right now, or at least he has the upside for it. But yeah, I don't know if he's that 100% guy. I think it's just more. It's just more someone that they need to get in here to really be that to elevate the quarterback talent that they really haven't had recently. And, you know, because Jordan Travis is good, but he's not elite. And I'm not trying to knock the kid, but what he is, is he's the best fit for this team right now. Mm -hmm. The offense that they have, the talent level that this team has on offense, he makes it work. His mobility, the dual threat, everything like it just fits perfectly more than Mackenzie Milton. And then behind Mackenzie Milton, they lost Chuba Purdy, who just transferred out the other day. Not that we thought Chuba Purdy was going to be that guy either, but it was an option to consider. They don't really, that's it. They don't, you know, Tate Rodemaker is still, you know, redshirt freshman. He struggled last year when they threw him into the fire. He's not expected to be that type of guy. So down the road, it's really Duffy. And then 
They have the Chris Parson kid coming a year after that. As of now, the kid from Tennessee in 2023 is another dual threat. Looks pretty good. But he's not an elite five-star guy that you look at and you're like, holy, holy shit, we're bringing this guy here? You know, that type of thing. It's not that either. So you wonder if you wonder when it's going to get to a point where FSU is going to find such a guy if they can, or maybe closer, even if you don't find like a five-star, let's say, but a little more of that upper tier talent when it comes to the quarterback position. I mean, we'll see it, it. It it all has a trickle effect. It all, how they finish this season, what they look like coming the next year. I think they're going to have to hit the portal probably just for depth after losing Purdy to try and bring someone in. And then you, and then we'll see, you know, do they bring a high caliber guy or do they bring just like a, another fill in option? You know, let's see what we'll they'll have to see what's out there. FSU certainly did a great job with the portal getting, you know, the Jermaine Johnsons and the Kier Thomas. Kier, of course, was the ACC defensive lineman of the week after getting two sacks last week against NC State. But they've they've done a great job filling needs on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but we're, we're sitting here talking about the future because we know, Dre, like this is not three and six FSU versus five and four Miami is just not the way the rivalry should be. It's not what we grew no. up on. We no. grew up if on we, all if we had a time stuff. machine and if we had a time machine and showed the tape of Saturday to our uh, to to our, ourselves in our 20s, we'd throw up. You know, <laughs> um, I got to ask you, being the Miami native, being the guy who had, uh, you know, went to the Orange Bowl and had all the Miami Hurricanes T-shirts in his <laughs> closet back in the day when I first met you. What 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 has it been like? We'll talk about the game in a minute. But what what has it been like being on the other side of the rivalry? What have you learned maybe about the FSU fan base? Um, maybe just the administration, the school that you didn't know that you thought, Hey, this is something new. This is different. I didn't know they thought this way, or I didn't know they think this way or whatever it is. What what has sort of struck you being a Miami guy who's covering FSU? Well, I mean, at the beginning, I think it was very surreal. I mean, I remember the first day I walk in there and the war chants going and I'm thinking to myself, like in a hundred years, you wouldn't have told myself five years ago <laughs> that I'd be here. You know, and then that that was the weird part. And then but, you know, it's been honestly, it's been very welcoming here with me. Like I haven't really, you know, I haven't felt like an outsider or anything like that or or the enemy, which was, again, not I, I knew like the, the the rest of the beat and the, and the administration and, and people dealing with the school itself wouldn't treat me that way. But I thought it would be like the fan base that way. And I really haven't. I'm sure there's people out there. I mean, I know at the beginning, my boss got a few emails saying, oh, God, you, you, you hired a hurricane. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, that kind of thing. And, but no, in general, I think it's, you, you, you know, man, and I'm not trying to rip people, but we grew up and we're from Miami. We've been there. We've lived our lives there. You know how fickle it is. The fan base, you have to win to be good to, to, for people to care. And, you know, I covered the Marlins for Christ's sake, the team that doesn't get more than 5,000 fans out there, even if they say they do. And up here it's different like they no they're not packing Doe Campbell to the last possible seat it's not like that but I've noticed that there is that smaller town college atmosphere really is true and they like they do passionately care about this and I think that's why like you've seen some of these coaches the last couple of years that uh, you know the situations here have been unfortunately you know the big guys have been on the hot seat and whatnot they're really trying to believe that Norvell can turn this around and we'll see I mean I think they're for now They've given him the benefit of the doubt, but we'll see how it goes. I mean, that I think that and the and the I never really experienced up close like what it's like to have like those traditions, you know, like those 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 on campus kind of stuff. I mean, I'd seen it at UM in in some ways, but you know, the little things like the sod cemetery and all that kind of stuff. It's 
it, it's cool that atmosphere like that, that's what college football should be you know like the, all the little traditions all the cool stuff you know and i and i really it makes me miss the orange bowl because i feel like miami had more of that when they were there you know yeah. and like i always feel like hard rock is a little more stale and it, it's better for the dolphins you know it's right. not and, and that that that's always sad to me there's been a few times this year where i've seen the place going crazy at at, at fsu and, and it and it makes me think, damn, I missed the Orange Bowl, like when it was nuts and it was when those wild games back then, because you had an atmosphere, you know, mm-hmm. like like that sort of thing. So anyway, I, I know, again, maybe like I went in a few directions there, but that's kind of the stuff that that's really stood out and kind of seeing it from the other side type of thing. And I'll say this, the the common thread that we can all agree on is up here as Canes fans and Seminoles fans could both agree to hate on the Gators. Yeah, that that yeah. that tradition reigns true no matter what. First, uh, we're going to get to the game, I promise. But I just thought of this as you were talking and we were getting sentimental about the Orange No, this is fun, yeah. And the old days. Um, first year with no Bobby Bowden and Howard Schnellenberger, right? First first game that we have yeah. since they both passed. Um, curious what the atmosphere is going to be like. Uh, do you know if they're doing anything to honor Bobby during the game? Um, anything you've heard along those lines? I mean, just because both of those guys meant so much to both programs. Well, I don't know if they're doing anything in particular to honor him because they've done a lot, obviously, since he passed. They had tons of tributes. They've put, you know, the the cursive name with the hat outline. You'll see it on like on the on the mm-hmm. on one of the ends of the stadium, like one of the old tunnels there behind the end zone. Right. And th- what's impressed me is the way that the rest of the conference has done it. I mean, whenever they wherever they've gone this year, there's been a tribute. Clemson put the same thing on the sideline i mean that's Mm. impressive to put it on the field bobby with the hat and wake forest did it like on the brick wall outside the stadium north carolina did something similar so every stop along the way they've done that the one that the one that would be impressive too and i think they are planning something is when they go when they go to the swamp in a couple weeks i think the gators are playing something and that just tells you you know the arch nemesis like they are and still they had they have the respect to do that for them it's pretty interesting. I mean, they, they had they did show on the Jumbotron a couple of weeks ago a, a, a montage that had Howard talking to Bobby back in the day, mm-hmm. which it was kind of cool. So it wasn't necessarily like a planned tribute per se, but right. they kind of they kind of said on they, they kind of stayed on it for, for a few seconds and they showed the interaction from one of those games, you know, back in the early 80s or whatever. And and so that was cool. So it was kind of a and, and I think I even heard like a little reaction. It was pregame. So there weren't that many people yet in the stadium. But you heard a little bit of like, a, you know, like a, the volume right. went up a teeny bit because I think people noticed it. Right. And it was kind of a thing like that. So that was cool to see. You wrote the story when he passed. You you talked to a lot of people up there. Um, how much does I guess his presence still felt this year in light of everything? I think it has with the coaches because I think Norvell really respects what he did here. You know, like he's very aware of there's no FSU the way it is now without what he did. And he to to him, it means a lot to try and continue that legacy. And I think that's part of why. I mean, he's invested by nature because you see him and he's Mr. Energy. He's he's, high intensity all the time. But I think there's a layer of that that is also I want to do proud like what what the school means because, you know, I'm not saying he didn't care when he was at Memphis, but I think obviously he knows this is more of a brand when he took over this job, it was a huge opportunity for him and everything, but to continue that legacy. And I think you see it also like in, you know, Dell Hagens has been here forever. 
played for Bobby, you know, Ron Dugans has been here forever, played for him too. Like the assistant coaches that go way back that either coached with him or played for him or both. And they've tried to kind of keep that sort of like that family vibe that, that Bobby tried to have with his players, with these guys. And, you know, it, it kind of shows because these, you know, say what you want. Yeah. They're not pound for pound. Can't match up sometimes some of these weeks and they've had, games where they 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 look you know out of sorts because of their youth or inexperience but they they're 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 fighting they're and, and they really have, have shown it in, in some of these games even when they've come up short and, and and i think part of that is that i think part of that is the just the the environment that they've created based on what they learned when they were playing and i had a good conversation with lamont green senior about that when you know speaking of when i went down to miami he you know he he talked about it you know, and I wrote about it, how he's very proud to have his son learning from Odell Hagen the same way he did when he was a young, when he was like, you know, 18, 19 years old, whatever, you know, at the, at the time and learning from that, cl- that coaching group right there, which, you know, again, it's like that chain of all that was passed down from Bobby Bowden and all the years that he created this. And it's very similar to his early years right now, what's going on, because he, he lost a lot at the beginning. Right. You know, it took a while. I mean, we're in a, it, that was a different era back then, less scrutiny as there is now. Like now, you know, obviously it's, there's more win now than back then, but he was under pressure where another year or two, and who knows, maybe he's not there, you know, anywhere nearly as long as he ended up being there. But, but it, it took a while to lay the foundation until he finally did and got it going. So we'll see. We'll see if, if Mike can do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's a part that I'm going to be looking forward to the most when I fly up there on Friday and, and we hang out and, and go to the game on Saturday at three 30. It's, it's, you know, what, what sort of historical feel is there going to be? Because this game is the first, again, the first time Miami and Florida state are playing since losing two of their most beloved coaches. Um, nobody, nobody grander at Florida state than Bobby Bowden for sure. Um, and it's interesting that so many schools have sort of honored Bobby, because I we have I haven't noticed that at all with Howard. And obviously it's a different animal. Howard was at Miami for five years and won the first national championship. Bobby's a legend and one of the winningest coaches of all time in a different situation. But it's interesting that that Clemson and all those schools have done that. I did I wasn't aware. And, and I'm, I can tell you this, Miami fans, as as much as they may hate Florida State, you know, and fans and it's Florida State hate week and all that kind of stuff. I think there's always been a genuine level of respect for for Bobby in a way that Miami I don't think has ever had really for any other coach and that mm-hmm. they've that they've gone against you know um I think Miami fans admire that guy and and, and will always admire that guy and respect them for what uh he did at Florida State and then how he treated Miami he always talked mm-hmm. about Miami in a great way never ridiculed them never said anything negative and in the end the hurricanes you know their last two coaches are Bobby disciple uh, Bobby disciples I mean Mark Rick yeah. and and Manny Diaz and Manny Diaz talked about it this week. They still invoke the the, the prayer before every you know coach meeting. That mm-hmm. and that's I a tradition that. that Bobby st- that Bobby started. And so, you know, his impact on Miami is is felt certainly. Um, yeah. But let's talk about the game because people obviously want to hear what you have to say about that too. Um, <laughs> Miami, a two and a half point favorite. Uh, they've won four in a row in the series. But Miami coaches will be the first to say this is a much improved Florida State team than the one they beat 52 to 10 here last year. Number one, Mike Norvell is actually going to coach in this game. He doesn't have COVID this time around. Right. Um, and it looks like the quarterback's coming back. 
Uh, what do you think? I don't hear that tap. That's me. That's me knocking wood. Like nothing <laughs> happens in the next three days. But yeah, what, what do you what do you think determines this game? And give me your prediction. What do you what do you, what do you see happening on Saturday? I, I okay. It's not going to be fifty two to ten. Let's start there. But yeah, duh. Uh, no, no. And I think it's by nature just the way Miami seems to always get in these adventures. And some of what you said. And if Jordan Travis, I. Uh, again, this isn't official, but my hunch is, yes, he's going to play just from the last two days, seeing him respond. I mean, he practiced on Tuesday and today he spoke to the reporters out there and and he looked he looked a lot. You know, he, he didn't look sick at all. Looks like he's ready to go. That in itself is going to make FSU better. And I think that's going to be something that obviously they need. They need to play. They need to be able to run the football because when they do, that's when they have a chance to win these games. I see it. I see it as a high scoring game. I don't know if you agree or not, but I think it's a high scoring game because I don't know if FSU has it to slow down what Miami has found with Tyler Van Dyke. I think they're going to be able to put points on the board. They really have no answer for Charleston Rambo on the boundary. They're going to have to pray that they can slow down other their other receivers. The other susceptible thing to me is the tight end. I think if Miami can hit them with a few with Mallory and maybe expose the middle a little bit, that's a that's another key. So. You know, on but on Miami's end, can they contain FSU if they can run the football? That's the other side of it. So that's why I see both these teams putting up points. But the role that Miami's on right now, I mean, I don't, I, I, I kind of see it going the Canes way. I don't know if by two and a half or maybe by seven, but it's a one score. I think it's a high scoring one score game that maybe comes down to one mistake, whether that's a penalty, a, a turnover, something happens in the fourth quarter that swings the outcome. This is the game of all of them that are left uh, that, that scares me the most for Miami because I think FSU is going to bring their best game and having their quarterback back is going to help them without question. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, so I think it's going to be a tight ball game. Um, you know, Andy Borgales has, has been a good kicker for most of the year. I think he's 9 of 13 on field goals, but he missed another one last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's times when he's inconsistency and we know how these games come down to kicks, right? I mean, it just always seems to be yeah. a missed extra point, a missed field goal, well, a uh, block, whatever happened. Like it, yeah. it, 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 it's carried on. It's not just been wide, right? Like it's carried on yeah. through the years. Yeah. And, and, and on this side of it, I can't feel it's too safe on, on this side of it either because Ryan Fitzgerald <laughs> missed the game winner against Notre Dame. He made the game winner against Syracuse. Right. And he hasn't, he's attempted one field goal in four games. Right. So at this point, that's a, that's a, that's a wild card at this point. Like who knows how he'd respond, you know, if that came down to his, to his leg at the end of the game. I'm going to pick Miami 36, 33. I think they're going to cover the two and a half point spread. And I think what it's going to come down to is can Florida state put enough pressure on Tyler Van Dyke to create turnovers. And I wrote about this the other day. He is playing at a level that it, no Miami quarterback really has. Uh, you'd have to go back to Bernie Kosar in 1984 to find a quarterback who's thrown for 325 consec- you know, 325 yards in three consecutive games. This guy has 10 touchdowns, one interception, 1,100 yards passing, and he's on fire. And he's got a running back in Jalen Knighton who's really thriving. Um, and he's got a, a, a great number one target in Rambo. And... I think they're going to score points. I agree with you. I don't think there's going to be much defense in this game. And I think Florida State's going to have success running the football. They've hit on a lot of big plays. I remember watching that Notre Dame game. They hit on big runs. And Miami is susceptible to the big play. They played better against Georgia Tech. 
Um, but what's going to help Miami is the fact that they've got the better quarterback in this game. And I think it's going to be nip and tuck down to the end and somehow, some way, Manny Diaz. I just, I just know it's, I, I just feel it. Like it's going to happen. He's, they're going to finish eight and four and they might actually sneak into the ACC championship. Like I, I'm, I would not be shocked if that with, with, a, with a better chance than they did a few years ago against Clemson, because a much no, better chance because there's no Clemson right now. Right. They're not <laughs> really in it. Correct. So, I, I just I think Miami's going to pull it out somehow, some way and 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 continue to advance uh, and put themselves in position with two wins at the end of the year to to uh, to get in. Put stats aside. You know what I do like about Tyler Van Dyke? Mm-hmm. He talks shit and he backed it up. <laughs> I'm serious because he when he came out and said what he said against NC State, I was like, dude, are you kidding me? Like right, two and four and all of that. I even I, I admit it. I was one of those guys going, okay. He backed it up, and what does that remind you of? The old school, the old school talk shit and back it up. Hurricanes of the old days. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a tiny glimmer of it. We don't. That's not you know widespread right now. But hey, that impressed me because, and, and not just back it up one week. He's done it three games in a row now. You yeah. know. And I will say this, Miami's offensive line, I know FSU's got a great pass rush, and really that's that's what their hope is in this game, right? That they that they bring Tyler Van Dyke down, they, they sack him a few times, cause some fumbles, interceptions, whatever. Miami's they're capable because op- Jermaine yes. Johnson, we saw it against Clemson. He did that to DJ. They almost pulled it off against Clemson because of that strip sack. But, and that's the whole thing. It's not just get to Van Dyke, but a play like that needs to happen for them, for them right. to have a chance. Correct. And Miami survived Pitt. Pitt, Pitt put pressure on Tyler and Tyler did a good job beating it, uh, beating the pressure. Um, so he's not a guy I think was going to be necessarily rattled by it. Um, and I will say Miami's offensive line, Jared Williams, DJ Scaife, both of those guys are playing at a much higher level. Mm-hmm. Zion Nelson is holding his own at left tackle. Uh, I think they've done enough. I, the only way I see Miami losing this game is that they have some injuries and they lose some key guys. Then I yeah. can see Florida State winning. Um, but right now I'm going to pick Miami to hold on. So yeah. that's my take. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, my school, I think the score I threw out there was like 38, 31, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. I haven't, I haven't put the prediction in yet completely, but it's a, I'm in that one score right. range, both teams in the thirties, that type of thing. And the same goes for FSU. If they, if key guys that were missing last week are out again, you know, up front, they were missing Dylan Gibbons. He's their best run blocker. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, little things like that, then obviously that affects a lot. Right. Yeah. These these aren't teams loaded with depth like back in the day. So they lose no, a key you're guy. Not, with, no, you, you're not four or five deep like Georgia and Alabama on these two. No, no. So, Dre, I appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, uh, man. Great catching up. Look forward to seeing you uh, this weekend and, and covering the game. So uh, make sure uh, to follow Andre on Twitter. You want to give him your, your Twitter and, and where to find you? Yep, Fernandez, Andre C, and then TD online or Tallahassee.com is easier if you want to look at uh, all our content on the Seminoles. All right, so there you go. That's our preview for the Florida State game on Saturday. I will be back next week to break down what happened, talk more Canes football. But Andre, it was fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll see you up there this weekend, buddy. As, as we Hispanics say, que se repita. <laughs> exactly, exactly, my brother. Six eight. This is the state of Miami. Y'all know y'all come down that way.